Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to True Crime Aficionados. My name is Misha Iman, and I'm your host for this True Crime Book Club podcast. Today's episode is episode two, where we get more into Ted Bundy's university life and some of his um, romantic entanglements, we should say. (laughs) It's a wild ride from start to finish, so buckle up. Let's get into it. At the University of Washington, Ted Bundy met the co-ed of his dreams, Diane Edwards. In other books, she's been referred to as Stephanie Brooks, Marjorie, or Carla. She was beautiful, polished, and from a wealthy family in San Francisco. She was a little older than Ted and expected to graduate the following spring in 1968. She was his first girlfriend. Diane was everything that Ted Bundy was not, yet desperately wished to become. When they became a couple, he was so proud of his accomplishment of snagging the perfect co-ed that he showed her off like a possession to his friends because, of course, Ted Bundy objectified women. Bundy said, During the spring quarter, I met a girl and we developed a very intense relationship. I had a Volkswagen at the time, but most of the time we used her car because mine wasn't working very well. Her name was Diane. We were both interested in intellectual topics. We got along very well. Her father was vice president of an international company, and they had a lot of money. She was an only child. Her parents were part of her everyday life, and I got along with them. She was dressed well, well well-groomed. She had been a model at one time. She was very impressive and very appealing. I really enjoyed that. (laughs) Fucking creep. I mean, literally Ted Bundy, but go off. Ted Bundy's douchey friend, Warren Dodge, was impressed and said... I was kind of surprised that Ted had something like her with him. Bitch, something like her? She's not a fucking Barbie doll. Stop. Stop objectifying women. Women are not objects. We are not made to please you or appeal to you in any fucking way, shape, or form. Period. He did a totally normal thing very early in their relationship and took Diane home to meet his mother, Louise, who recalled, She was very nice. At the time... Ted was very serious about her. In the summer of 1967, Ted attended Stanford University. He received a scholarship to the university's Chinese Institute to partake in an intensive Chinese language program. He went to Stanford to impress Diane, which was very Elle Woods of him. However, unlike Elle, this proved to be a huge mistake. Ted was used to being alone. Go figure, Ted Bundy was a fucking loner. But the problem was that he hated being so far from home, away from his comforts, his childhood friends. So he began bombing his classes because again, he wasn't that smart, just really good at pretending to be smart. Bombing his classes made him fall behind his classmates and resulted in him having difficulty making any new friends. Thankfully for the literal world, he began to rethink his decision about a career in foreign affairs. Can you imagine Ted fucking Bundy An ambassador to China? No. Which, though, makes me wonder, how many other fucking psychopaths are literally in the government? A lot of serial killers, if you Google, were interested in becoming police officers or going into some form of government. So, when asked if he finished his classes that summer at Stanford University, Ted Bundy said, No, I couldn't focus on the lectures. I left without taking the final exams. I found myself thinking about standards of success that I just didn't seem to be living up to. After that summer, I felt I wasn't measuring up. 
everything was just a bit too alien. So jumping ahead just a little tiny bit, just for context, in 1976, Ted Bundy was found guilty in Utah for the attempted kidnapping of a young woman named Carol Durant. The judge had a difficult time understanding how, you know, this attractive cis hetero white man could possibly be the fucking worst and ordered Ted Bundy to sit for a psychological assessment before the judge handed down his sentence. This assessment was conducted by Dr. Al Carlisle. The findings of this assessment literally made Ted Bundy cry, (laughs) which made me want to read it. And for this assessment, Dr. Carlisle spoke with an elderly woman named Sybil Ferris, who knew Ted Bundy during his university years. And let me tell you, Sybil spilt the fucking tea. Her opening line is, I'm a woman of 70 years and I know what goes on, but he doesn't have it. (laughs) Fucking slay Sybil. When describing what Ted Bundy was like when she first met him, Mrs. Ferris said, I don't know if he was high on dope or liquor, but he sure was a peculiar person. He got a job at that Safeway for a short while and then just quit, not even going back to work to tell them he was leaving. He borrowed $100 from me. I tried to get him to pay me back. He always had some reason as to why he couldn't pay me back right then. He never did pay me back. He is a very, very peculiar boy. He was just kind of sneaking around. He'd be on the telephone when you least expect him to be on the telephone. He would tell me he was going to be in one place and he would be somewhere else. His theft and the need to impress people suggested that Ted was impulsive, irresponsible, and had difficulty with commitments. Dr. Carlisle notes that the important point here is that these things were occurring while he and Diane still had a good relationship. This change in Ted's behavior from how he described himself in high school could likely not have taken place in such a short period of time after he graduated. This suggested that there was something very wrong with Ted which undoubtedly extended back through his teenage years and possibly into his childhood. This suggests that Ted had some sort of a secret life that he kept hidden from her and others who attempted to evaluate him. Mrs. Ferris continues, All in all, he's just a very weird boy. I talked to his mother once. I asked her if she would appeal to him as a man to return the $100 I loaned him. His mother said, He doesn't live here anymore and we're not responsible for anything he does. He never calls home anymore. We never see him. He's over there in Seattle, but we don't even know where. We never see him. We don't even know what his telephone number is. Mrs. Ferris revealed, like many other people close to Ted Bundy, that he would often use a British accent. (laughs) This bitch grew up in Philadelphia and then moved to Tacoma, Washington and somehow decided, oh, I'm going to pretend to be English because that somehow makes fucking sense. I worked with him at the Seattle Yacht Club when he was a busboy. He was six weeks at the Yacht Club and they let him go. He wasn't supposed to eat the food, but he was always in the pantry eating all the fresh foods and all the cheese he could get and all the fancy foods he could eat. He would grab them and take them back to his locker. He was always in trouble with them. When he got into politics, I called them and I told them he was a strange boy and a little on the crooked side. When asked if Ted was an easygoing person or distant, Mrs. Ferris said, Oh, he was distant. Ted never talked about his family or showed much affection for them. I had been suspicious from the day those two girls were killed at Lake Sammamish. With that suspect, who called himself Ted? I remember seeing him in an Albertson store in Green Lake with a cast on his arm. I was going to do something about it, but living alone, I was afraid to do more than what I had already done. Dr. Carlisle contacted Ted Bundy's first girlfriend, Diane Edwards, 
and interviewed her for this psychological assessment. Her responses made Ted Bundy cry, which made me really want to read it because he's a little bitch who can go fuck himself. Oh, he's dead. So it doesn't matter. Let's get into it. So when asked what she liked about Ted Bundy, Diane Edwards said, I was caught up by his ability to talk. You know, he could just off the cuff come out with anything and it would just sound good. And he wrote fantastic letters. When asked if he seemed to be involved with anything illegal, Diane said, I didn't know of anything. If I had, I probably would have been real scared. I'm a real chicken. In terms of Bundy having friends, Diane said, no, and that was weird too. There was none that I could think of. What did he do in his spare time? I don't know. He had a bike and he rode around on his bike. He also went skiing once in a while. He was very athletic. What was Ted like as you saw him at the time you were going with him? He was athletic and he was brilliant, but he was not terribly social. He always had a sort of bowing manner, always trying to get people to believe that he was humble and that he wouldn't walk on anybody's toes. He seemed to have a great deal of insecurity and a lack of finesse in dealing with other people. His actions were to make people feel, poor Ted, sweet little Ted. Did it ever seem that he was hurt by a girl? Not that I knew of. I felt he hadn't had much contact with women until he got involved with me. In the beginning, did he ever sleep with you and not have sex? Did Ted tell you that? We did a lot of playing around, but it didn't culminate in sex. Did he ever seem to get frustrated with that? I guess he did. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Diane was Ted's first serious romantic relationship. She portrayed Ted as a loner who was very insecure. Dr. Carlisle said it was as if he had the capacity for success, but not the personality to go with it. Can you say anything about his relationship with his mother? I was under the impression that he cared about his mother and he felt sorry for her. He felt she was a competent person who got messed up with a nothing of a father. Ted said that you and he would have some arguments or quarrels. What was he like in those situations? Oh, pitifully weak. He wasn't strong. He wasn't real masculine. Sorry, Vom Diane, that's gross. He wouldn't stand up for himself. And the things I got mad for were primarily that he lied. He sometimes told me that he hadn't eaten that day because he didn't have enough money. Sometimes I felt he was spending his last dime to buy me something. Ted Bundy is complete fucking trash. It's really unfortunate that he was food insecure and he sometimes didn't eat all day long. Like that, that fucking sucks. That does suck. And when she says that he sometimes spent his last dime to buy her something, that's true. He did that. And that's fiscally irresponsible, which that's his fucking problem. Dr. Carlisle again reads Ted to filth when he says... Ted was a phony. Ted's personality was shallow and superficial. It appeared that he was a good actor, but only for short periods of time. He could repeat a personality script as if he was in a play on stage, but it was only a character part he had taught himself, and he didn't have the depth of an actual personality behind it. He responded by sort of begging. I told him it was never going to work, that he wasn't the kind of person I needed. I pushed him away and cut off my ties with him. What was his reaction? He cried. He cried. He was really falling apart in front of me. Ted told Dr. Carlisle he dropped out of college at Stanford University because he couldn't focus on the lectures. However, that hoe obviously lied because he dropped out because Diane broke up with him. When Dr. Carlisle interviewed other people in Ted Bundy's life, he came to the conclusion that Ted was never able to recover from their breakup. When Diane broke up with Ted, he lost his shit. Author Kevin Sullivan describes in his book, The Bundy Murders, 
It was a knockout blow to an already fractured personality. Ted told his cousin he needed to get out of Seattle because there were bad remembrances, which is the most cryptic, high-key drama, dramatic shit ever. Diane later told investigators what had been his winning boyishness now struck her as immaturity. Ted apparently would often sneak up behind her, tap her on the shoulder, and then vanish. That annoyed her, and she advised him to grow up. Of their breakup, Ted recalled, she got her feelings hurt easily, and the relationship strained over petty matters. Diane was older than me, and she expected more financial security than what I could provide. I had no savings and was often broke. I felt insecure about our relationship. Ted's brother Glenn recalled that Diane screwed him up for a while. He came home and seemed pretty upset and moody. No, Glenn, sweetie, Diane didn't screw him up. The only thing she did was exercise her autonomy to not be involved with a fucking man-child. Screw him up. It is no one, no one's responsibility to fix another human being. Screw him up. Suck a dick. His mother remembered. As I understand it, she told him she couldn't wait around for Ted to have made it. He was pretty hurt by that. The rest of 1967 was, as Ted remembered, absolutely the pits for me. The lowest time ever. (laughs) I'm sorry. Ted returned that fall of 1967 to the University of Washington and gave up on his Chinese studies major after having wasted a year in its study. He had the intention of majoring in architecture and urban planning for no better reason than Diane once said she admired the architect role played by Albert Finley in the movie Two for the Road. It was all he could do to go to class. He developed a phobic dread of encountering Diane on campus. By Christmas, he withdrew from school. Dr. Carlisle believes that something significant, possibly traumatic, happened between Ted and Diane during his summer classes at Stanford University. Stealing, especially shoplifting, came naturally to Ted Bundy. He was not a thief in the ordinary sense. It was more akin to kleptomania. However, he was never once caught for shoplifting. His first principle was to remain anonymous. Once he decided what he wanted, he would put on his good suit and comb his hair to look presentable, yet forgettable. Then, he'd down two or three quick beers. I drink just to pump myself up. I thought I wouldn't have any inhibitions. I didn't want to be looking over my shoulder and appear nervous. That's important. He stole a television, a stereo, home furnishings, cookware, clothing, and artwork. Around the time he turned into a full-ass kleptomaniac, Ted bumped into an old acquaintance from high school. His friend casually mentioned that if Ted was interested, he could work for Art Fletcher, a black small-town city councilman who was running to become the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. Ted jumped at the chance. I just pitched right in, he said. I thought, oh boy, here we go again. I hadn't had a social life for some time. It just felt good to belong again, to instantly be part of something. I didn't have the money or the tennis club membership or whatever it takes to really have the inside track, but politics was perfect. You can move along the various strata of society. You can talk to people to whom otherwise you would have no access. He immediately quit his various jobs and went to work as a full-time volunteer and worked so hard, in fact, that he had the great fortune to be named Art Fletcher's official driver. I became his personal driver for him and his wife. I was somewhat of a counselor to him, and I would critique his speeches and his political policies. Which Dr. Carlisle believes is not true, that this political candidate would take advice from this bum-ass Ted Bundy wannabe loser. During the campaign, Ted watched how people got along and memorized some of the social skills he couldn't come by naturally. 
He took meticulous care with his appearance and dressed in a casual, steady tweediness. The clothes he couldn't buy, he stole. One time, we were out of town during the campaign. I went to a party as a representative of Fletcher, and I was picked up by a woman and taken to her house. I was very drunk. During the night, the girl came down and hopped in bed with me. That was my first sexual encounter. This girl was separated from her husband. She was hysterical. I slept with Diane half a dozen times with no clothes on, and we petted heavily, but we didn't have sex since she wasn't on the pill. Okay, so question. Is this an instance of Ted Bundy being sexually assaulted? I mean, he doesn't say that it was non-consensual, but some woman just climbed into a bed while he was drunk and had sex with him. Okay. Um, also, condoms have been around for a long time. And he's citing the reason why he and Diane didn't have sex was because she wasn't on the pill. That's stupid. Just fucking put a condom on. When asked if it bothered him to not have intercourse with Diane Edwards, he said, no, she smoked and I didn't. I liked classical music and she was more into rock. Dr. Carlisle says, I'm not sure what Diane's smoking and the fact that they were into different music had to do with whether or not he was bothered by their incomplete sexual experiences, but okay. When the campaign ended, he saved up some money, sold his 1958 Volkswagen, and headed once again for Philadelphia. Still unable to emotionally return to the University of Washington, Ted enrolled at Temple University in Philadelphia in January 1969. When asked what stopped him from returning to the University of Washington, Ted said, It was just the memories of the failures I had there. I went to Temple University in Philadelphia, and I majored in political science. I had understood that I could get a degree in law without having to have a bachelor's degree. I took classes on the nature of student populations to find something to get the community involved. I gained an appreciation of law-abiding Blacks. Pause. Fuck you, Ted Bundy. The fuck? The fuck? Okay, I'm going to move right along because I cannot focus on that at the moment. (laughs) He's dead. Anyway, I went one semester and got B's in my classes. When I learned that I couldn't get a law degree without getting my bachelor's degree first, I lost interest, so I left. I took a transport car across the country to San Francisco. I'd been writing poems to Diane. I contacted her when I got there. I was there about five days and we spent a lot of time together. This dumb bitch really thought that he could go to university, maybe do two years, and then just go to law school? Okay, sure, Jan, you fucking moron. Like, (laughs) literally to have the confidence of a mediocre white man. Oh my God, let me tell you the things, the things I would get done with my time. Bundy would admit though in veiled terms, of course, that it was during his time at Temple that his desire to start acting out began. At Temple University, Ted did moderately well in theatrical art classes, where he learned a little something about acting and makeup. By now, Ted had made the realization that his face lacked any single characteristic that stood out above the rest. His face could be anything he wanted it to be, having a mustache, combing his hair differently, gaining or losing a few pounds, growing a beard, all changed his appearance dramatically. He could, when he wished, be as anonymous as he wanted. He had, as one of his judges later observed, the face of a changeling. Days before his execution, Ted would tell investigators of his first attempt to capture a woman in Ocean City, New Jersey. He apparently attempted to nervously strike up a conversation with her, 
and then somehow tried, but then failed to subdue her. Thank fuckfully. Thank fuckfully? Thank fuckfully? That's not a word. It is now. Thank fuckfully she escaped. <laughs> Dr. Art Norman interviewed Ted Bundy shortly before he was executed and says, Ted told me in no uncertain terms that his launch into murder was killing two women while living in Philadelphia. Seven years later, explaining why he left Philadelphia, Ted said, the region was crowded, dirty, and contained no forest. During the summer of 1969, Ted Bundy returned to Washington State, where he once again decided to delay his return to the University of Washington. He rented a small apartment on 12th Avenue Northeast in Seattle's University District. His landlords, Ernest and Frieda Rogers, saw him as most others, polite, considerate, friendly, and never rowdy. <sighs> okay, so now we meet Elizabeth Kendall. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm like already biasing you by taking a deep sigh, but her book, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, was um, a difficult read. She was Ted Bundy's first long-term girlfriend. And she has a memoir that was turned into a Netflix film, the one where Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy. I don't remember what it's fucking called. Whatever. It was a shitty movie. Zac Efron is hot, but also stop romanticizing serial killers. Ted Bundy was not hot. Like put Zac Efron and Ted Bundy in a room next to each other. There is no contest. Zac Efron could fucking get it. Ted Bundy had a unibrow and was a pedophile. So that's that. Her book, The Phantom Prince... During her relationship with Ted Bundy, she suffered from alcoholism. From what I believe now in the afterword of her book, she's been clean and she's been sober for many, 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 many years. So reading the book was a challenge because she made some fucking questionable choices regarding Ted Bundy. So yeah, let's just get into it. It's Liz Kendall. She was Mormon. She was recently divorced and she had a young daughter named Molly who was three years old. And she moved from Utah to Seattle because she was ashamed of being this divorcee, living in this Mormon community because, you know, religion is so accepting, blah, blah, blah. And she was this like, she called herself a hick in the city life. And she had a friend, another Mormon friend from Utah who was already living established in Seattle named Angie. And Angie helps her out by getting her settled and finding a place for her. So one night, Liz realizes she has a parking ticket on her car and starts crying about it and like invites a bunch of people over to like commiserate about her parking ticket, which I would have been like, girl, you're doing too much. Just pay the fucking ticket and keep moving, but go off. And so then they all decide to go out to drinks to a bar to like cheer her up because she got a parking ticket. And it's at this bar, long story short, that she meets Ted Bundy. So he says, I met Liz Kendall that fall of 1969. I had a lot of pleasant memories of her and her three-year-old daughter. And Liz says, sitting across the table from him, I was surprised at how easy he was to talk to and how easily we laughed together. He had a smile that made me smile back and beautiful clear blue eyes that lit up when he smiled. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. And beautiful clear blue eyes that lit up when he smiles. He had thick eyelashes, a strong jawline, rich curly hair, and a nice body. <sighs> when he told me he was only 23, I couldn't believe it. He said he didn't realize he had been looking sad. He was just thinking about leaving. He wanted to know why I moved away from Utah. I told him briefly that I had been married, that I had a daughter, and that my marriage had ended. I knew when I first looked at him, before we had even danced, that he was a cut above the rest of the crowd. 
His slacks and turtlenecks certainly weren't from JCPenney, and the way he moved projected confidence. He seemed to be in control of his world. He had a distinctive way of speaking, not really an Eastern accent, but more like a British one. He said his name was Ted Bundy. Other people familiar with Ted Bundy's somewhat peculiar speech noticed this as well. James Doros, who maintained a basement apartment at the Rogers Rooming House with Ted, got to know Ted Bundy quite well. He described his speech as having a clipped, concise diction similar to an Englishman who had been Americanized. Another acquaintance, Kathy Farmer, first met Bundy at Hunt Junior High and remained casual acquaintances throughout high school. She said, Ted Bundy had a very interesting speech pattern. I noticed that he had a Northeastern accent. At least one of the witnesses at Lake Sammamish described the abductor of Janice Ott and Denise Naslin as sounding British. Dr. Carlisle said, Bundy either would not or could not alter this peculiar trait, even in the midst of committing murder. This very odd speech pattern, which was more pronounced at certain times, was no doubt an outgrowth of his strange personality and how he perceived himself. It wasn't an intentional method used to guile young women. Liz continued, The chemistry between us was incredible. As I watched his handsome face while he went on about places to go and things to see, I was already planning the wedding and naming the kids. He was telling me that he missed having a kitchen because he loved to cook. Perfect. My prince. By this time in his life, Ted Bundy was an accomplished peeping Tom with an appetite for the most repulsive type of pornography. The violent domination of a female by a male. Ted told Liz that he had the intention of enrolling in law school and also claimed he was working on a book about the Vietnam War. Of course, this stupid bitch was fucking lying. Law school? He hadn't even finished his undergraduate degree. Liz ate it up. For Liz, Ted created the Ted Bundy who wrote books and went to law school. In truth, he was a dropout working as a legal messenger when they met. After meeting this stranger in a bar, they leave together, which is fine, but then she drives drunk to go pick up her daughter from the babysitter. Granted, it's 1969, but do a quick goog. Drunk driving was illegal back then too. As she drives to go pick up her daughter drunk. I don't think at this point she was like a full, full alcoholic, but she definitely was abusing alcohol. But please don't drive drunk, especially not with children in the car. So she says the babysitter was wearing nothing but overalls. And when she bent over, you could see right down to her navel. I was embarrassed, but Ted didn't seem to notice. Sis, obviously Ted Bundy noticed. Don't be fucking stupid. And also that happened in 1969. This book was written in 1981. You still pressed about it so much that you put it in the book? Choices, but okay. She says, I drove and Ted held Molly on his lap. I was a little surprised and a little skeptical, but I was mostly concentrating on driving the car and not throwing up. They go back to her apartment where she passes the fuck out and Ted Bundy just stays in her house overnight. Doing what? I don't fucking know. But Liz was passed out and her daughter was there too. Who knows? Remember, he is a pedophile. Dun, 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 dun. So yeah, Liz says, what was this city life all about? My head throbbed as I got out of bed, still dressed in yesterday's clothes, and staggered into the living room. Molly and I planned to go on a ferry ride across Puget Sound. Ted hinted that he would like to come along, but I ignored the hint and offered to drop him off at his house in the university district. What sort of mother would take a strange man home in front of her child? Also, the fact that they just met and Ted's like, yeah, I want to come too. The fuck? No. The next day, she says, as I left work and headed to my car, I looked up to see Ted coming towards me across the parking lot. Now, during their date, she just 
casually mentioned where she worked and this bitch showed the fuck up the next day. That is scary. And for me would have been not just like a red flag. It would have been like a fucking banner dropping down with like neon, like flashing bulbs. Like he just showed up to her job. That's not romantic. That's creepy. That is wild. That is wild to me. Couldn't have been me. So she goes on to say, we went to a supermarket I hadn't discovered before. It was huge and spotlessly clean with wide aisles and no long lines at the cash registers. I learned later that it was the classiest supermarket in town. The mom and pop store near my apartment was a grimy little place that did most of its business in a Thunderbird. She basically was going to shop right and he took her to Whole Foods and she was like gagged. Okay. Ted knew a lot about food and wine. I was impressed by any wine that had a cork in the bottle. Ted told me he hadn't been around kids much. Not around children much. He literally killed an eight-year-old girl when he was 14. When Molly was finally asleep and the bottle of wine was almost empty, Ted asked me if I would spend the weekend with him in Vancouver, British Columbia. I said yes. So first he shows up to her job unannounced and now he wants to isolate her. Just saying, this is classic, classic, like, abuser behavior. Liz asked her best friend, Angie, who lived around the corner, to babysit Molly. However, Angie would be away, but she said I could leave Molly with her roommates. Excuse me? (laughs) Make it make sense. He talked about growing up in Tacoma, becoming a Boy Scout, and selling American flags door to door. He said that when he owned a house, he was going to put up a flagpole out front and fly the American flag every day, not just on holidays. I didn't know if he was serious or not. During their Vancouver trip, aka his step one of indoctrinating Liz into the cult of Ted Bundy, she said, I stayed in the car when he went in, wondering how he was going to register. Mr. and Mrs. T.R. Bundy had a nice ring to it. We got back to the hotel, walking some and kissing a lot. As we walked through the lobby, we tried to look calm. Heaven forbid that the desk clerk or bell captain should know what we were about to do. Like, sis, you literally have a fucking kid. She wasn't born through osmosis, what we were about to do. You're a grown-ass woman being coy about fucking, come on. So they get back to the hotel room and she uses the phrase making love a lot and I vomit. He says to her, I've been wanting to do this since I met you six years ago. Or was it just six days ago? So while they're like on this little uh, romantic getaway, Ted Bundy tells her about Diane Edwards. Which, I'm sorry, you are on a romantic getaway with this newfound, like, person, and you start talking about your ex? Okay. Wouldn't be my choice, but go off, you know. She says, We walked with our arms around each other, moving together in perfect rhythm. I was lightheaded. Which, if you look up the symptoms of chlamydia, I'm just saying, sounds like you have an STI. Um, You should not be lightheaded while you're just walking, unless maybe you have asthma or something, but check it out. But I mean, really, what was sex ed like in Mormon-ass Utah in the 60s? Who knows? Liz also says, Soon we began spending most of our time together and about their relationship. I believe the man should be the leader in the relationship and Ted liked to lead. Sure, Jan. Ted said, I had my own apartment, but I stayed in her apartment for weeks at a time. He told Dr. Carlisle, she and I had an intense relationship. Liz said, he seemed hungry for family life. Apparently, Ted also told her in this, like, I guess at this point, they've been dating for a month. I know, he said, I feel the same way, but it's as if we've known each other before in some former life. We fit together so well in so many ways. We fill in all the gaps for each other. 
I look back on my life before I met you, and it all seems that it was terribly empty. I love you more than you will ever know. Do you see why this book was difficult to read? She wrote this book while he was in prison, literally on death row, for murdering and raping a 12-year-old girl. Why is this reading like a goddamn love letter to a fucking pedophile? During their romantic weekend, they obviously discuss their home life and their background, and Ted reveals, Liz says, Ted had grown up in a house that he hated because his room was in the basement that had never been finished, and it embarrassed him to bring friends home. Not long after our deluxe weekend in Vancouver, Ted took me to dinner at an expensive restaurant overlooking Puget Sound. Later, he confessed that he had spent his last dollar on that meal, and that we would have had to wash the dishes if I ordered another drink. We laughed about it, and I was all the more flattered that he had taken me there. Even on the night we met in the Sandpiper Tavern, he finally confessed. The reason he was sitting at the table looking so dejected was that he had run out of money for beer. I realize now that my family was more affluent than Ted's. His finances were the same as most of the students I knew. He was broke most of the time. Yet neither of us doubted that wealth was in Ted's future. He was marked for success. I was perfectly happy to go places with him in my car, to pay for the gas, and to pay for the food he ate at my house. Sounds like she was getting finessed, but okay, okay. At this point in his life, Ted Bundy had a strong appetite for violent pornography. He later admitted to police interrogators that during this time, he crept around the university district late at night. Sometimes, he stole things from the houses. Other times, he peeped into women's windows. Liz's friend Angie admitted that one evening, as she was entering her apartment in the university district around 2 a.m., she spotted Ted Bundy roaming around through the backyards of the houses opposite her rear window. Having been told by Liz about his habit of jewel thievery, she naturally assumed he was out looking for things to steal. What else, she reasoned, could he be doing? Liz also began to see the bizarre aspects of his personality. But let's be real, she was dick drunk and chose to ignore them. On one occasion, Ted left her place one night only to quickly return to retrieve something he'd hidden under her front porch. When Liz opened the door, Ted froze and stood looking, as Liz described, really sick, like he was hiding something. When she asked what he had in his pocket, he refused to answer. So respecting his boundaries, she shoved her hand inside his pocket and pulled out a pair of surgical gloves. Without saying a word, he snatched the gloves back from her and ran away down the stairs. Again, totally normal. Liz admits that he once shouted at her that he would, quote, break your fucking neck if she ever exposed him for his thievery. She remembers one night she awoke to find Ted examining her body under the covers with a flashlight. Later, he tried to talk Liz into anal sex, which was outside of their normal sexual routine. A few times, she allowed him to tie her up before they had sex. He used her stockings, which she noticed he found immediately in her dresser without needing directions. In addition to his growing consumption of violent pornography and his obsessive nightly peeping Tom enterprise, Ted Bundy was also developing what author Stephen Mashaw describes as cyclical depression. Bundy said, it wasn't dictated by the cycle of the moon or anything else. Not mood swings, just changes. It's goddamn hard for me to describe it. All I wanted to do was lie around and just consume huge volumes of time without doing a thing. Even in these periods, however, I was capable of being genuinely cheerful and gregarious, at least for a limited period of time. I became an expert at projecting something very different, but I was very busy. I had a huge part of my life that nobody knew about. It didn't take much effort at all. Dr. Carlisle points out, another oddity of Ted Bundy's personality 
was his habit of sometimes signing his name on personal correspondence as Ted with a lowercase t rather than Ted with a capital T. The recipients would notice this right away. To say Ted Bundy had an image problem or battled feelings of insecurity would be an understatement. It was only three months after Ted Bundy and Liz met that they began to discuss marriage. However, there were no actual plans for a wedding. This did not sit well with Liz, as they were essentially living as a married couple anyway. Ted was constantly staying at her apartment, and from this, she somehow rationalized that they should go ahead and get married. This way, she could start helping him pay for law school. This is where they were ultimately heading anyway, and in her mind, this was the next natural step in their otherwise very loving relationship. During Christmas of 1969, Liz and her daughter Molly flew back home to Utah to be with her parents for the holidays. Always short on money, Ted Bundy caught a ride to Utah with her friend Angie. By now, Liz was very much in love with Ted Bundy. She saw a future in their relationship and naturally hoped he would find acceptance with her father and mother. My folks were pleased with Ted. My mother's only criticism being that she thought he was too hard on Molly. Which, I'm sorry, the fuck? No, that's that's gross. You don't let some fucking strange man who just walked into your kid's life tell them what they can and can't do. That's not her fucking dad. You're not married. Like, that's not cool. Also, what does that mean? He was too hard on Molly? Excuse me? This bum bitch who doesn't even have a job, who's always fucking broke, who can't even pay for school for himself. He needs his girlfriend to do it. And wasting her gas money she's paying for meals is hard on her daughter. I'm not a parent, but it couldn't have been me. If someone has some shit to say to my kid and Mimi, I'd be like, how about you take several seats, collect your senses, because clearly you fucking lost it. And once you've done that, get the fuck out, period. Liz continues, I didn't like not being able to be open with my parents about the exact nature of my relationship with Ted. And I felt that it wasn't fair to Molly to have this man around who wasn't really her dad. There wasn't even a word for what he was in relation to us. I think the word she's looking for is, is boyfriend, but okay. And what she means by not being open with her parents about her relationship with Ted is that when she went back home to Utah, when Ted went with her, they slept in separate rooms because, you know, religion, Mormons. And she did not disclose to her parents that back home in Seattle that they like lived together. He had clothes in her closet. And, you know, so she was lying to her parents of like, he, 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 I've never seen his penis. Like you literally have a kid grow up. One day in February, I took time off from work to get a marriage license. Angie met us at the courthouse on her lunch hour to be our witness. She also loaned us $5 for the license. Sis, if you can't afford a $5 marriage license, maybe you shouldn't be getting married. I wrote to my parents and told them the good news. They were very pleased. Ted held off on telling his parents. On the ride home, Ted told me he thought we should wait until he graduated. I thought that was stupid. If we got married now, I could help put Ted through law school. I liked the idea of working toward a goal together. My parents were coming for a visit soon, and I hoped we would get married while they were here. I told Ted that we should move his clothes out of my closet before they came, because I didn't want them to know that we were practically living together. Ted thought that was childish. You're a grown woman, Liz. You have a daughter of your own and a life of your own. For God's sake, grow up. When we got out of the car, he put his briefcase on the hood, opened the case, took out the marriage license and said, if you're that hung up on what your parents think, then you're not ready to get married. Let's forget the whole thing. He tore the license up in little pieces and threw them on the ground. Then he turned and walked away. I hate the fact that I have to agree with Ted fucking Bundy, 
but it is childish. At the end of the day, like, she literally is a grown-ass woman living by herself with a daughter of this little marriage, whatever the fuck this was, fiasco, Ted Bundy said. She wanted to get married, and there were times that I did as well. When it came right down to it, I wasn't quite in the mood. We got a marriage license, but I hadn't graduated from college, and I wasn't a wage earner, so I didn't follow through. I deeply loved her. My being able to go back to college was largely due to her support. She frequently supported me, in fact. So he freely admits, and Liz also admits later, that she did loan him money to go back to the University of Washington. That's how he was able to enroll because he didn't have money of his own. She did. So the fact that she was using, oh, we need to get married so I can help pay for law school as a reason doesn't make sense because she was already doing that. When asked by Dr. Carlisle what kept him from marrying Liz, Ted responded, Liz didn't fit the mold of a politician's wife. And she had a daughter. Ted planned to start law school the winter quarter of 1970, but Temple University did not get his transcripts out in time, so he was held up for another quarter. I kept reminding him to check up on his applications to be sure everything was in order, but he regarded my reminders as nagging, and whenever I tried to talk about law school, he changed the subject or brushed my questions aside with vague answers. When I began to realize the futility of my nagging, I made the decision to shut up about it. Spring quarter of 1970 began, and still no word about law school. Finally, I called the admissions office. So Liz calls the admissions office to find out, like, what's going on. Because Ted isn't giving her answers, but, like, girl, boundaries. And the woman on the phone lets her know, like, hey, yeah, I don't know who told you about some sort of winter quarter, but people start in the fall. Like, that's it. And she was like, oh, I think you have a mistake. And the woman's like, no, the only one who's mistaken is you. Um... I'm going to go and like, goodbye. So Liz like sits there and she's like, oh my God, he's been lying to me. So she is really mad about this and confronts Ted who says, I'm going to start law school for sure this summer, but I still have two years of undergraduate work left. I can understand if you can't live with that. Girl, you cannot start law school without first graduating and obtaining your bachelor's degree. So I don't know why or how she accepted his response, his answer, of I'm going to start this summer, but I have two years left? Girl, this lie about law school had gone on for six months. I had already told everybody I knew about my law student boyfriend. Maybe I had made such a big deal about it that it was impossible for Ted to tell me the truth. I could understand his wanting to be someone he wasn't. I had those feelings too. Maybe I made him feel he wasn't good enough as he was. There was no doubt in my mind that he would be a successful lawyer someday. It just would take a little longer than I counted on. I wasn't about to give up on him over this. When he told Liz that he was still two years short of an undergraduate degree, she urged him to return to school. Liz gave him a couple of hundred dollars to cover tuition, and in the spring of 1970, Ted Bundy re-entered the University of Washington, majoring in psychology. Ted revealed to author Stephen Mashad that his decision to major in psychology was probably an outgrowth of my confusion about myself. Stephen Mashad writes, He tore into the subject with demonic intensity. He didn't miss a single question on one final exam. He wrote a paper on schizophrenia that won high praise from his professor. From May 1970 until September 1971, Ted Bundy drove a delivery truck for a business called Pedline, a family-owned medical supply company. He once stole a photograph from a doctor's office, and his boss let him off with a stern lecture, which, I'm sorry, what, what was that picture of, or who? 
The company didn't know until later that Ted Bundy had been stealing from them too. Among the things he stole was a container of plaster casting material, crutches, and a speculum. Uh, If you don't know what a speculum is, give it a goog. It's S-P-E-C-U-L-U-M because it comes up later and it's not good. Also, in May 1970, Kevin Sullivan writes, Ted Bundy contacted campus police at the University of Washington and offered his services as an informant. Apparently, he disagreed with the tactics that some of the more radical anti-war groups were using and in at least one instance gave authorities detailed information concerning their plans. So he was a fucking snitch. And also, why is it a lot of these fucking crazy ass serial killers want to be cops? Which makes me wonder. Some of these cops maybe are not serial killers, but they are fucking killers. But it's just like, why are they drawn to that profession? Maybe we should look into that, that all of these unhinged fucking homicidal maniacs want to have guns and be cops. Just saying. Liz later said, that fall, Ted took the LSAT and worried that he hadn't done well. When his test scores came back low, I was surprised. He was intelligent, but he couldn't seem to produce well on tests. His first choice was Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. His last choice, the University of Utah. Also, just note here again that he wants to go back to San Francisco, which is where his first girlfriend is. He just cannot get away from her. Early in 1972, said Liz, my doctor advised me to give my body a rest from birth control pills. He stressed the importance of finding an alternative method of birth control before I stopped taking the pill. Ted and I discussed the alternatives, but none of them sounded very appealing, so we decided we would just be very careful. She stopped taking her birth control pills at the recommendation of her doctor, said Ted. It was just to give her body a rest. She got pregnant early in 1972. She decided to have an abortion. I didn't urge her to or try to stop her. She had the abortion. We both had deep, deep regrets about not having a child. Both of us knew it would be impossible to have a baby now, said Liz. He was going to start law school in the fall, and I needed to be able to work to put him through. In June of 1972, Ted finally graduated from the University of Washington with honors, obtaining a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology. As a graduation present, Liz gave him a yellow six-man rubber raft that the two of them could enjoy when they went on picnics. This raft would later play a major role in demonstrating the violent side of Ted Bundy. His family came to Seattle for the celebration, the graduation ceremonies, and then a salmon dinner at my place, said Liz. Ted proposed a toast to me for my helping and getting him through school. His mother wanted to know what I had done to help. Had I typed his papers? Didn't she know I was practically supporting him? Speaking of Louise, imagine if she would have just swallowed, like, the world. Anyway, after graduation, he had decided that he wanted to become a lawyer and to begin work in politics. Ted's next job was in May 1972 in a work-study program run by the Seattle Crisis Clinic, where he worked alongside crime writer Anne Rule. One night a week, he took calls from the frantic, the lonely, and the suicidal. At least once a month, there would be the high drama call of someone who had already followed through with self-harm and was in danger of death by suicide. Ted would keep the caller on the line long enough for the number to be traced and finally hear the police break into the caller's home and save their lives. The people Ted felt most sensitive to were women. He said, Dr. Carlisle said, at the time of my evaluation of Ted, Anne Rule was a strong supporter of his. At Ted's request, she sent me a copy of a poem he wrote to her while he was in jail. 
She had gotten to know him fairly well over the months they worked together, so much so that when Ted was arrested in Salt Lake, she was convinced by what she had seen when working with him that there was no way he could be guilty. For those of you who are new to Ted Bundy, you should check out The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. That's kind of the quintessential go-to book for Ted Bundy. To Dr. Carlisle, Ted admitted, I got a summer job at the Seattle Crisis Clinic doing counseling. I got a lot of personal growth and maturity from it. I began to feel cocky and I started showing up at Liz's apartment less often. I got involved with a couple of girls at the center. I slept with both of them. I did the typical bad guy thing. It was just that Liz needed constant reinforcement. She needed love over and over again. Some of the things that caused conflict were her ideas of how to raise a child. She had no firm idea of how to do it. My position was that a timeout was the best solution when a girl showed disrespect toward her mother. Liz exploded on her daughter. She grabbed her daughter and would shake her. I became insensitive to Liz. I began forgetting her birthday and not showing up for dinner, but we always came back together. However, there was one occasion where she had somebody over to her apartment. She was drunk and they had sex. I felt terribly hurt. I went home and sobbed. My world was destroyed, Dr. Carlisle said. His statement was slow and firm. At this point, Ted went silent and stared into space. He was reliving the event. There was a dramatic change in his body language. His voice was stronger. He was very angry. And while his face was turned toward me, he looked beyond me. What I saw was a very hurt man. He had just finished telling me that there was nothing major that made him angry with Liz. Now, he reported an extremely emotional event. It appeared that this memory was one that he couldn't suppress and once it came into his mind, couldn't avoid talking about. After several seconds, he gained his composure. He looked at me and said, we got back together and both cried. That was the only time she was unfaithful. While Ted was at home being the ultimate hypocrite, sobbing that Liz slept around, he was not playing around with four women. Liz Diane, who he stayed in contact with through phone calls and letters all these years later, and apparently two women he worked with at the clinic. Dr. Carlisle says, this appears to be somewhat psychopathic. Ted Bundy said, one of the girls at the Seattle crisis clinic was named Kimberly. Liz discovered that I was seeing Kim. One night I took Kim to a restaurant and when I got back to my apartment, Liz was there. She was hysterical. I saw her like that a couple of times. Both of the times was when I'd gone out with another girl. When Liz saw Kim's car, she went into a state of physical shock. I was deeply ashamed that I hurt her. I told Kim about it. When I went to Liz's apartment, Liz sat there staring. She was like a zombie. I got her best friend to come and watch after her. I felt extremely bad about it, so I told Kim it just wasn't working out. I went and broke it off with her. So Liz tells her side of the story in her book, The Phantom Prince. It is fucking wild, wild. Buckle the fuck up. Molly went to Utah to stay with my parents later in June and Ted took a full-time job for the summer at Harborview Hospital's mental health center. I spent the 4th of July weekend in Utah, but Molly didn't come back with me. I was lonely and everything seemed to make me sad. The day I got back, Ted asked me if I wanted to go out the next night or Friday, but I was so tired, I said I didn't know. The next day, I felt a lot better and called Ted at his job to tell him that I wanted to go out after all. He stammered and hemmed and hawed and finally told me he had a date. What? A date? With who? A woman I work with. Remember, 
I asked you first. Tell me you're kidding, I pleaded. Please don't do this to me. I slammed the phone down and waited for him to call me back, but he didn't. I told my boss I had to leave. I rode my bike home, crying all the way and talking out loud to myself, telling myself it wasn't true. I took my bike into the apartment and threw it to the floor. I let out a scream. You asshole, I shouted. You fucker. You made me kill my baby for you and your goddamn career. You're a miserable son of a bitch, Ted Bundy. I hate you. Then I started in on myself. God, you're stupid, Liz. You're a goddamn stupid idiot. A goddamn ugly pig. What did you think he would do? Love you and cherish you? He's just used to you and now he's through with you. I poured myself a glass of scotch and I drank it straight. It burned and tasted awful, but I deserved to be burned. I prayed the phone would ring or that he would knock on the door and put his arms around me and take my pain away. I poured another drink. I went into the bathroom and looked into the mirror at my ugly puffed face. You're going to be held accountable, I told the face. I took the bottle of scotch and sat in the back of the closet and drank till I passed out. When I came to, it was after midnight. My apartment was pitch black and I didn't want any lights. As long as it was dark, I might be dreaming. There was a little scotch left in the bottle and I drank it down. Still with the lights out, I changed into my jeans and put on a black sweater and a black parka and put a small butcher knife in my pocket and set out for Ted's place. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got there. I kept my hand on the knife in my pocket, very much afraid that I would be attacked. I looked up at Ted's windows, no lights. So I sat down on the porch to wait for him. I got cold fast. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Maybe if I went back to my place, Ted would be there. I crept back home. No one was there and no one had been there. I drank the beer in the refrigerator and passed out again. First thing the next morning, I threw on some clothes and drove over to Ted's. His landlord let me in and when I knocked on Ted's door, there was no answer. I felt around the ledge where Ted always hid his key, found it and let myself in. The bed was made. Maybe he hadn't come home at all. I poked around the room looking for evidence and found it. In his garbage can was a note from a girl named Marcy. Saw you out riding your bicycle in the sun. Came by to visit you, but you weren't here. You missed out. By the time Ted burst into the room, I was lying on his bed, hysterical. What are you doing here? He said, coming towards me. I sat up and started scooting backwards away from him. I didn't want him to touch me. Are you all right? I rolled off the bed and shot past him. He reached out and grabbed me and wrapped his arms around me. I was shaking with rage. I had so much to say that I was speechless. Stay here until I get back, he told me. I nodded, but as soon as I heard him go out the front door, I ran after him. He was just getting into a sporty red car. That must be her car. Maybe I should follow him. Go back to my room and wait for me, he shouted as he drove off. I sat on his porch steps and put my head on my knees and rocked back and forth and moaned and moaned. I drove home and put the car in the garage. I was too tired to get out of the car. I heard footsteps running along the side of the garage. I thought I had cried myself out, but when I saw Ted's face, the tears began again. I sprang out of the car so fast I think I scared him. I grabbed his shirt and began pushing and pulling him. I wish I was bigger than you. I'd beat the shit out of you, I screamed. He steered me into the house, out of earshot of the neighbors. I kept screaming at him. When did you stop loving me? Did you ever really love me? Why didn't you tell me? I went on and on, out of control. I ran to the bathroom and locked myself in. Ted stood outside the bathroom door. Please come out here and talk to me, he was saying. Get out of here and leave me alone. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. The berserk sound of my own voice scared me. I was starting to feel detached from myself. I wondered what the people upstairs must be thinking. I'm going to get Angie, 
Ted shouted over my shouting. Will that make you feel better? Oh, yes, I said sarcastically. That will make everything fine. You get Angie and then things will be swell again. Within a few minutes, Ted was back with Angie, who had a towel wrapped around her wet hair. He had crashed in on her while she was in the shower and scared the hell out of her. Why didn't you call me, she said. What good would that do, I wondered. Would that make Ted love me? What was the point? Angie and I talked. Ted said little. I wanted to know more about this other woman. He told me she was somebody he worked with at Harborview. How long had they been dating? Well, they had spent Fourth of July together, he said. All day? You must really like her. Where did you go? I felt like a kamikaze pilot. I don't think that's important. Telling you details will only cause you more hurt. I knew why he didn't want to go on. You went rafting, didn't you? You went rafting with her and the raft I gave you as a present. I only wish the raft was here so I could slice it into a million yellow ribbons. At last, I sent Ted away. I was tired. I spent the next few days with Angie talking, drinking, crying, ranting, raving, crying some more. Ted looked in from time to time. I finally realized that life was going to go on. I went on a shopping spree and brought myself a bunch of new clothes. One evening, I was trying on a new nightgown in a nice store. I looked good in it and I wanted to buy it. But I thought, what for? I knew Ted would be back for sex. Over the years, our sex life had been a strong bond between us. Our desire rising and falling in cycles, but always tender and gratifying for me. And I knew why. I loved him with all my heart. He probably liked our sex because it was available, nothing more. I bought the nightgown, admitting sadly to myself that if this was the only way I could be part of Ted Bundy's life, I would settle for it. So let's get into Kimberly because Dr. Carlisle tracked her down and Sis had a lot to say. Kimberly, referred to as Kim by her friends, was an attractive 23-year-old who had graduated college and was doing an internship in counseling at the Harborview Mental Center in Seattle the summer of 1972. Bundy left the crisis clinic and also had taken a job with Harborview Mental Health Center. Here, he continued to counsel people, now in person. However, it was reported that Ted Bundy was not capable of being emotionally responsive to the needs of his clients and patients. When Dr. Carlisle called Kim, she said she was initially impressed with Ted's good looks and his ability to talk. Ted seemed to like Kim because she was attractive, fairly wealthy, and came from an influential family. Although Kim was initially impressed with Ted, her roommate thought he was weird. Another friend thought he was pretentious and a phony. Ted hadn't been at the center for very long before people changed their opinions of him. Kim said they were critical of him because he didn't follow the normal intern schedule and he came and went as he chose. According to Kimberly, Ted was often cold and almost abusive with his cases that summer. He was more apt to lecture than to counsel. He was further suspected by the hospital staff of calling patients at home at night, making anonymous threats, and talking inappropriately of sexual matters. When asked to discuss sexual activities between them, Kim said, A couple of times when he made sexual advances, it was a real mental and physical struggle about who was going to get their way. It wasn't that I would tell him I didn't want sex. It was the timing. It was a put-down to him, an absolute put-down. I really had to do a lot of fast talking because it wasn't appropriate at that particular time and that place. That seemed to be more and more of a challenge to him, as if he were trying to break down the barriers. To win was sort of a conquest of his. Oh, so she means he was a rapist. He was a fucking predator. 
He did not understand boundaries from the get-go, even with people who he was in a relationship with who were willing to have consensual sex with him. He couldn't fucking control himself. What a fucking piece of fucking shit. Oh my God, I wish he would have died a virgin fucking... Sorry, I just, I, I hate him. Kim described a time when Ted took her on a picnic to a local river. He drove down the highway until they reached a point where Ted turned off the main road and began to navigate a series of dirt roads. Kim was impressed that Ted knew this out-of-the-way place for what she thought was going to be a casual picnic. It seemed obvious to Kim that he wasn't looking for a new place to have a picnic. He had been there before. There were no houses or other indicators that many people went there. When we got there, he said he wanted me to climb up into a tree that extended over the river and jump into the river. This is where the antagonism started. It was a stupid thing to do in the first place, and then to try to force me to do it? I got in the water thinking that if I was already in the water, he couldn't keep pressing the knee to climb up into the tree and jump in. He got in the water with me and dunked my head under. He tried to untie the top of my bathing suit, and it was a pretty swift current. I didn't want to lose it. Kim said Ted held her head under the water for a long time. When he allowed her to come up, she confronted him. What are you trying to do? Drown me? He laughed and dunked me under again. I didn't think of it as I was going to drown. I didn't think he was trying to kill me. I just thought, he doesn't realize what he's doing. He pushed her head under the water three times and kept trying to undo her bathing suit top. To stop him from doing that, she tied her top into so many knots that she had to cut it off when she got home. Kim saying that Ted didn't seem to realize what he was doing was a giant red flag for Dr. Carlisle. Some of the violent inmates he worked with in prison told him of times when they would go into a fantasy while attacking their victims. They said the depth of their fantasies was such that they were unaware of what was going on around them. Another woman Dr. Carlisle spoke to regarding Ted, who was a friend of Kim's, said, that Ted seemed to space out when he was stressed. It appeared from her comment that Ted dissociated. When Ted and Kim got out of the river, they had sex. It evidently was on the ground and not on a blanket because Kim remembered small cuts and scratches on her back and neck from being on the ground. She said the sex was consensual, but it was as if Ted was raping her. She said it was very intense, very aggressive, It was as though I really didn't think he was conscious of what he was doing because it wasn't a bonding situation. I was just a body laying there. It wasn't as if we were doing something together. Something was being done to me. It was sheer terror. It flashed through my mind that nobody else was around. Okay, so a person's consent can change at any point during the sexual experience. And for Kim, it appears that her consent changed. She went from being like, okay, we're, I guess we're going to have sex now to being like, oh shit, we're alone. This is happening to me, not with me. What the fuck? Like she said she was fearful. So he was raping her because he's a trash ass human. And I wish if I could have the ability to just straight Kendall people, like one second they have a dick, the next they don't, I would fucking do it in a heartbeat. And they would have to like, like make amends and like do public service or some shit to maybe get it back. And they would know, they would know the reasons why. They'd be like, oh shit, you know what? I didn't know how to properly use my dick, so I guess I can't have it back until I stop being fucking garbage. All right, anyway. She described his behavior as different from the other men she dated. She said, he always wore dark clothes. Even in the summer, he wore turtleneck sweaters. 
He was a night person. He would show up without telling me he was coming, sometimes at midnight. When asked if there was anything strange or puzzling about Ted, Kim said, well, at times he would take me for a drive in the hills by Lake Sammamish and he would drive around and around and around. I would ask him about it and he would say he was looking for an aunt, which didn't make sense because there were only cabins up there. It certainly was not a residential place by any means. It was in the woods. Not only that, but they were driving around in Kim's car and these dirt roads were bad. And Kim became frightened because she yelled at him. I kept telling him to slow down and he wouldn't. Finally, she insisted that he slowed down and she said, he really reacted. He started yelling at me. I couldn't figure out where that kind of reaction was coming from. His temper was way out of line. To tell me to shut up was one thing, but he really exploded at me. That was the first display of temper I had seen. It was inappropriate. It wasn't as though I was sitting there nagging at him. It was just one comment. After that, I didn't know what to say. Also, not him yelling at her while he's driving her fucking car. Ted did not enjoy working at the mental health center, so he left September of 1972. From here, he went to work for the Governor Evans re-election campaign as a volunteer. The young woman with whom Ted worked were captivated by his handsome features, dapper aesthetic, and polite manners. Ted was unfailingly polite to his superiors and was described as being bright, sharp, and having good ideas. His primary duty was to secretly trail Evans' opponent, Albert Rosslini, and report back any useful information to their side. Ted Bundy sometimes wore a disguise, such as a false mustache. Working as a spy for the Evans campaign came naturally to this phony bitch, as it allowed him to move freely among his opponents without being seen for what he really was. Kevin Sullivan writes, Despite bouts of depression, this activity on the political scene and the knowledge that he was needed in such a high-profile endeavor gave Ted Bundy a reason to push through these dark periods. Those who worked with Ted during the campaign have only fond memories of their co-worker. Ted Bundy was an asset to those around him and considered a hard worker who could be counted upon. Such diligence always had a way of being rewarded, and Bundy would continue his rise in the Republican Party. The summer of 1972 also saw Ted Bundy make his first attempt to enter law school. He beyond bombed on his LSATs. He was particularly embarrassed by his poor results on the grammar portion. Nevertheless, he applied to various schools around the country. However, despite recommendations from a number of his professors at the University of Washington, every law school turned him down because he was a dumb bitch. With help from his political friends, Ted left the Seattle Crime Commission and found a job at King County Office of Law and Justice Planning. His assignment was to study recidivism among those convicted of minor offenses in the courts. He, however, focused on a side project he was given, which was to, ironically, write a report on sexual assaults against women. He paid particular attention to how attacks were committed, the ratio of arrests compared to convictions, and how the numerous police and sheriff departments worked together or did not work together to solve these violent crimes. By May 1973, Ted Bundy obtained a better job in Olympia working for Ross Davis, the new head of state GOP. He earned $1,000 a month, more money than he had ever earned before. Ted Bundy was well-liked and became good friends with Ross Davis and his family, occasionally having dinner at the Davis's home where he played and got along well with their children and even spent time walking their dog. He never once mentioned Liz, yep, remember Liz, to Ross Davis. 
One afternoon, Ted drove his recently purchased 1968 Volkswagen over to the Davises' home. In the driveway with Ross, he opened the car's trunk to rummage for something. As Ross looked into the trunk, his eyes landed on a pair of handcuffs. Ted Bundy once more applied to law school with the glowing letter of recommendation from Ross Davis. He was accepted into the University of Utah's School of Law beginning that fall of 1973. However, at the last minute, he decided not to attend. He wrote the university and told them he had been in a car accident and had to cancel his coursework for that fall. During Ted's flourishing career in the Republican Party, he and Liz were still together, but he didn't see her. One of Liz's friends said, One night, Ted was walking toward his home and me and Liz passed him on the sidewalk. He didn't even recognize Liz, who at the time was his girlfriend. His response to anxiety was to space out. Another woman said that Ted was a loner. She added, If he couldn't find his girlfriend, he would call around with a panicked feeling. One night, he couldn't find Liz, and he sat in a bar for hours talking to me about it. During this time, one day while he and Liz were out shopping, Ted spotted a purse snatcher and ran the man down. He held the suspect until police arrived. Ted's heroics were duly noted by the Seattle Times, the first ever mention of Ted Bundy in the newspapers. That summer of 1973, Ted also saw a good deal of Marlon and Sheila Vortman, a law student and his wife, who had been active in the 1972 Evans campaign. One day, when Marlon went to visit Ted at his apartment, he was confused by Ted's explanation that he often came and went from his second floor room by means of a ladder. He did so, he said, because he didn't want to disturb the fellow rumors. Ted's newfound independence and confidence working as a Republican made his relationship with Liz further strained. He almost totally excluded her from this part of his life. At this time, Liz was also very unaware that Ted was still talking to his first girlfriend, his first love, Diane Edwards. Ted said that during the summer of 1973, he became restless. He went to San Francisco. He contacted Diane. Although Ted claimed to have love for only Liz, Diane stayed on his mind for years. He kept in touch with her from time to time. Diane would later tell police that she found her ex transformed from an immature boy into a man of action. They met up, went to dinner, and had a good time. He stayed at a motel the first couple of nights and then was invited to stay at Diane's apartment, Spicy. They agreed that she would travel to Seattle in December for Christmas, where they would continue to discuss their relationship. He was still with Liz, and he was making promises that he would marry her when he earned his law degree and got established in a career. He didn't tell Liz about having spent a week with Diane in San Francisco or about his plans to meet with her in Seattle during Christmas. It appeared that Ted was wife shopping, as Dr. Carlisle says. He felt that Diane would likely make a better wife for a politician than Liz. When he returned home from his little rendezvous with Diane, on the advice of Marlon Vortman, Bundy decided to forego the University of Utah Law School and instead remain in Washington and attend the newly opened School of Law at University Puget Sound. However, his time at the night program was a complete fucking disaster because, are you ready? He didn't like the law school's aesthetic. He called the older building where his night classes were held mediocre and cheap. Author Stephen Mashad writes, What Ted encountered on orientation day was a motley assortment of aspiring legal scholars who ranged in appearance from the well-groomed to the scruffy. He was appalled. 
Immediately, he began to bomb academically. He kept his failure a secret for as long as possible from both his girlfriends. That Christmas, while Liz and her daughter Molly were spending the holidays with her parents in Utah, Diane Edwards visited Bundy for a week in Seattle. The Vortmans let him use their apartment while they too were out of town. He and Diane spent their time skiing, discussing their future together, having sex, and generally enjoying each other's company. Diane was satisfied with being with Ted during the Christmas holidays, but Ted wasn't. A proposal for marriage was made, but it's unclear who suggested it first. When Diane got on the phone to return to San Francisco, she went with the commitment from Ted that they were to be married by spring. But again, Ted couldn't handle it. He hurried back to Liz, who had returned from her trip to Utah. Ted said, I felt bad about it and thought, what am I trying to prove? Do I love Liz or Diane? We talked about our future, even marriage. I believe she felt she was getting old and she pressed the issue of getting married. I felt terrible pangs of guilt because of Liz. It could have been ideal, but I didn't love Diane as much as I loved Liz. On New Year's Day, Diane flew home with plans of marriage. I couldn't get in the car fast enough to get back to Liz. It was like a breath of fresh air. I had new feelings about Liz. I couldn't bring myself to call and face Diane about the marriage plans. So one Saturday, Diane called me and asked why I hadn't called or written. She was very angry. I felt pretty casual. She said, I never want to hear from you again as she slammed the phone down. I heard she said she broke off our relationship. I can't understand how information gets garbled. Ted said the two of you broke up but then got back together later on in 1973. What was there about him that made you consider getting back together with him? He changed. He turned and went 180 degrees. This took place over a fair number of years, of course. He got some jobs, and he was in some political environments, which bought money. A little bit of money. God, he was evasive. That's the best description of Ted, evasive. He could have been living three lives, and I wouldn't have known. I never really knew exactly where he was or what he was doing, even if I asked him. He would pop up all of the time in weird places. When I was down here in San Francisco, he would just show up. When we were in Seattle, he would just show up on the street. One day, I walked out of my office at work at five o'clock and somebody said, hi, Diane, and there he was. It was sort of a weird feeling. It wasn't like, hey, I rolled in today or I got down this way or I hitchhiked or whatever. It was sort of just like, here he was. Sometimes I felt like he was watching me when he wasn't even around. Then he got very weird. There was a weekend I went up there this would have been the fall of 1973. We were sitting in a restaurant and Ted was against women's liberation and against abortion. He got real mean about it. He said he was against abortion law. He was very rigid about it. I couldn't believe it. I don't know if he was trying to be impressive or what. He said you and he were engaged at one time. Oh God, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was true. Apparently at the same time he was planning to marry Liz. Why do you think he would become engaged to you when he was with her? After it all blew up, I gave it a lot of thought. I feel the reason he did that was to get back at me, to be mean, vindictive. I suppose I really hurt him when I cut off the relationship many years ago. And the second time I came up, we had this lengthy discussion about where we were going to live and we would get married. It was his first year of law school and I agreed I would pay the rest of his law school. So we talked about the children and all sorts of things, and at first it seemed all right. However, I really didn't feel a lot of satisfaction about our plans. 
I came back home expecting to hear from him. He didn't call. I wrote him a couple of letters and I really laid out some feelings I had, but he never answered them. Diane called Ted in an attempt to understand what the fuck was going on. She says, and that's when I realized I was talking to a wall. He didn't have any answers. He didn't care. That's when I believed it was vindictive. I couldn't believe he was really going to carry it through. What was he going to do if I really did show up there to get married? By December of 1973, Ted had secretly reapplied to the University of Utah College of Law. He told no one of the decision until the following spring. Utah accepted Ted once again, but he wouldn't be leaving for Utah just yet. He had some unfinished business in Seattle. Thank you so much for listening to episode two of True Crime Aficionados. Please make sure to subscribe, like, and comment. Doing those things in tandem really help with the robots doing the math and the algorithms and, you know, all that jazz. So thank you so much. And next week, I will be getting into his murders. We finally get into the, I don't want to say the juicy bits, but the, you know, the point of the Ted Bundy podcast to talk about his fucking murderous psychopathy. The sources that I used for today's episode are The Phantom Prince by Elizabeth Kendall, The Bundy Murders by Kevin Sullivan, The 1976 Psychological Assessment by Dr. Al Carlisle, The Only Living Witness by Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, and The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson. Alrighty, thank you so much for listening. Have a good weekend. Go do drugs. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Have a good weekend. And as my dad likes to say, keep your head on the swivel.